0: Um, Today we're we're starting a new sermon series called Rethink Church. And we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about the church. What is the church? What's the relevance of the church? What's the purpose of the church? What do we do as the church? And so hopefully over the next month or so we're going to learn a lot about the church or be reminded of some key important factors of the church. I was watching an interview not long ago about... uh, it was, this interviewer was going around, kind of a man-on-the-street type interview, and uh, he was asking people, you know, what is the church, or what do you think of the church? And you can imagine we got all types of different answers. Uh, for example, you know, one person said that they think, you know, the church was, he said, it's a good thing. He thinks everybody should be involved in the church. And then another person said, well, actually, I think, you know, the idea of publicly worshiping with other people is really unnecessary because religion is private. Uh, Another person said, well, the church, it's it's a building with a cross on it. (laughs) That's what the church is. Uh, So you had all types of different uh, definitions. And, you know, the word church, everybody's familiar with this word. But I'm not sure uh, we understand what it means. Now, many of you may, but as far as the man on the street, uh, the, the definition of church conjures up a number of different ideas. So this morning, we're going to look at what is the church. And we're going to look at what the Bible says about that and how can we define it. And many of you are familiar with the creed that we read earlier. You know, in in 325 A.D. and again in 381 A.D., a group of church leaders got together, several hundred church leaders got together in order to come up with this creed. And, you know, don't let the word creed scare you. Because creed is simply a word from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. So it's just simply these groups of Christian leaders came together and they said, how can we articulate briefly what we believe foundationally as Christians? Or what you know C.S. Lewis would later call mere Christianity. How can we articulate that to one another and to the, to the watching world? And so you have what's called the Nicene Creed. That was also revised in Constantinople in 381. And so the Nicene Creed is simply this this statement of belief derived from the Scripture. It's not Scripture, but it's just a way of articulating what Christians believe based on the Scripture. And the reason I had us read this creed is because there's a line in there that I think will serve us well this morning as we look to define the church. And it's toward the end of the creed, and the line goes like this. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. And I want to use that line as our, out, as our outline this morning and then dive into the scripture and see where they got that from. What does it mean that we believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church? Well, the first description used in that line is that the church is one. In other words, there is only one church. Now, when I say that, things may be popping into your mind, questions may pop into your mind, well, Ron, which is the one church? Where is it? Is it the Hill Baptist Church? Or, you know, First Presbyterian Church? Or is it in South Korea or Africa somewhere? You know, that's that's not what he's talking about here. He's saying there is one group of people that are God's people. There There is one church Listen to uh, what what Jesus says in John ten in the Gospel of John chapter ten verse fourteen, and following he says. Just give you a moment to try to find it there, John fourteen. I mean ten fourteen. He says, "I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep." And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. There, there is one church, you know, one flock, and one shepherd, Jesus Christ. We also see this in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So if you flip over a few books to the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4... Verses 1-6, through this is what Paul writes. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So why should we do that? Well, he goes on to say, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And so we see that there is, like he says in verse 4, there is one body. Christ has one body, not five bodies or a million bodies. He has one body, and he is the head of that body, the church. And then a few chapters over, if you flip over to John 17, Jesus' prayer to the Father I want you to notice what He prays in verse 20. So John 17, verses 20 and 21. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, those who are with Him then, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so what we see here, this oneness of the church, there's kind of two aspects of it. There's an ontological oneness, which means that anyone who is in Christ or belonging to the people of God is in this one church, the one assembly of God, the one people of God. So there's a an ontological oneness. In other words, you belong there. You're, that's where your being is, your identity. You're in the church. But then there's also this relational oneness that can and should be visible to the watching world. In other words, if you are in the church, in Christ, and united with others who are in Christ, then that oneness should be demonstrated to the world. And that's why the Father... I mean, Jesus prayed to the Father that we would be one as, just as the Father and Himself are one. Another way to say this is that the church is both invisible and visible. You know, one, one scholar said it this way. The invisible church is the church the way God sees it. In other words, God sees all those who have faith in Christ. I mean, He sees the heart. He knows those who are His. And so He sees the oneness, the one church. He sees the one people of God, the invisible church. And then, what, then what you have... Here, the Hill Baptist Church, we are the visible church. So people can come in and say, well, this must be the church. These people are right here. And, you know, those people sitting, all of you sitting here, we may or may not be the church. It depends on if we have faith in Christ or not. But we are the visible church. And so, the unity or the oneness of the church, as one scholar says, becomes visible so this invisible becomes visible when believers share the same baptism, partake of the same supper, and look forward to sharing one heavenly city. The church on earth experiences this unity only as they are united in God's truth as it is revealed in Scripture. So you see what he's saying. The invisible church is made up of all those who have faith in Christ. But the visible church are those who gather visibly and share visibly in what the scripture says we should share in that is baptism the Lord's Supper the scriptures and so when we gather around those things we become the visible representation or the visible expression of the invisible church and so we can display this oneness that is true of who we are in Christ and I'm going to talk more about baptism and the Lord's Supper, these two practices that define the church uh, later on. But I want to say just a quick point here. You know, baptism and the Lord's Supper, it's, it's kind of like the wedding ring. You know, when, when you get married, our tradition is that you put on this wedding ring. And the wedding ring doesn't marry you, right? If any of you just took this ring and then put it on, you wouldn't be married to Celia, okay? That, that would be complicated, and we don't want to go down that road. But that wouldn't make you married, right? But what it does is it's a visible symbol that tells everyone here, guess what? I'm married. It's a visible way to show what's invisibly there, that connection between me and my wife. And so baptism, the Lord's Supper, gathering together, these are all visible expressions of who we are in Christ. And so that's the one way that we can be visible even though we are connected to people all over the world and all throughout time who are the people of God. And so the the church is one. So we believe that the church is one. But we also believe that the church is holy. And this idea of holiness carries with it two results. The first result is that there is this freedom, if you are holy, there is this freedom, freedom from the the penalty and the power of sin, and ultimately the presence of sin. But there's this freedom that comes with holiness in how we are made holy, and that is the church is, is the people of God that have been made holy through what Christ has done. And so we have been forgiven of our sin through what Christ has done. Because God is holy, in other words, He is pure. And so in order for us to be in the family of God, we too must be pure. And the way that happens is through the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when we place our faith in Him, we are forgiven of our sin, and we are made holy. And then we also know, over time, the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives externally, externally making us more in who we are. You know, we are the people of God and He's working in our lives. We call this sanctification. You know, He's making us more like Jesus in our everyday decisions, behaviors, thoughts. We're becoming more like Christ. We're becoming holy in that sense as well. And so the first result here is that we are free. If we're holy, we're free from the the power and penalty of sin in Christ. Listen to Paul's words found in Ephesians 5. This may shed some light on this. Ephesians 5, 25-27. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You know, one scholar said it this way. He said that the Lord is daily at work in smoothing out wrinkles and cleansing spots. From this it follows that the church's holiness is not yet complete. The Church is holy then in that in that sense that it is daily advancing and is not yet perfect. It's just like in your own life. You know, we're in Christ, we are holy in the sense that we are justified in Christ, our sins have been forgiven. But God's not going to leave us that way. He's going to make us into Christ's likeness you know, He's going to be moving us towards holiness in our everyday lives. And Christ promises to be able to present His church spotless and without wrinkle. And so we're holy In that sense, but we're also holy in the sense that, and the word means to be set apart. And so obviously, God is holy. He's set apart from the rest of the created world. I mean, He's uncreated, everything else is created. He's set apart. And the church is also a community that is set apart for a purpose, for a mission. So the question is what is the mission? What have we been set apart to do? Well, we find that mission in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus tells His disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so the church's mission is to make disciples of all nations. That's what we are set apart do. So we see there is one church and that church is holy. It is forgiven and it is set apart for a purpose, a mission, and that is to make disciples of all nations. So we believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. One holy, and that third defining truth there is universal. Now, Some of you have recited this creed several times, have you not? The Nicene Creed, you've recited it maybe in other different denomination churches or maybe you've just read it before and you've recited it before and you remember saying it this way, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Well, but what you may not know, and usually they have a little asterisk there, Catholic asterisk down at the bottom of the bulletin, Catholic means universal. You know, the creed was written in Greek, and when they translated the word from the Greek to the English, they translated it as Catholic, which was well known to mean universal. But now when we say Catholic, you think Roman Catholic, the denomination. And so when you read this creed and you read Catholic, you can't think or don't think denominationally like Methodist, Presbyterian, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox. So when you read Catholic, don't think Roman Catholic. But when you read Catholic in this creed, you should think of the universal nature of the church. That's what they were getting at there. And therefore, I I chose to translate that universal because I think that more clearly gives the meaning, especially in our own day. And so what does it mean that the church is... Universal. We know it's one, but what does it mean that it's universal? One scholar said that the church is universal and that it stretches across space and time. In other words, the church that exists in 2014, and even more specifically here at the Hill Baptist Church, this isn't the only church or only part of the church, but the church spans space and time. In other words, The church is what God has been doing since the beginning. The church is not a parenthesis in God's plan, but is a continuation of what God has been doing since day one. And that is, He has been assembling a people for Himself. He's been making a people for Himself. That's what God's been doing since the beginning of creation. Assembling, gathering, making a people for Himself. And so, you see it all throughout the Scripture. And you see, for example, in Genesis and Exodus, you see God calling out a people for Himself called the Israelites. And He uses words in the Old Testament like gather or assemble them together. And they're called the assembly. You know, one example of this is in uh, Deuteronomy 4.10, where the Lord says assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children so assemble these people together assemble these people together around the word of god so that they may teach them to their children and revere the lord this idea of assembling this hebrew word that's used to talk about assembling of people together when the when the greek when the greeks translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. We call that the Septuagint. When they did that, they took the word that means to gather or assemble in the Hebrew and they translated it into Greek by using the word ekklesia, which means the church, which means the assembly. And so you have in the Old Testament this one word using, used to refer to an assembly, and then over in the Septuagint, the translation, they use this word ekklesia meaning assembly or gathering. And that's the word in the New Testament that we get this idea of church. It's the, it's the assembled people of God. It's the community. You know, it's not the building with a cross on it. Even though in our day that we we refer to the building as the church and the people as the church, and so there's a little confusion. Whereas in early uh, Baptist history you know let 's say maybe over a hundred years ago uh, we would call this the meeting place it'd called the sanctuary you know, the meeting place, and we are the church, the people that are the church and that's that 's more correct, but anyway, the church is the assembly of the people of God, and um, for example, look at back at ephesians five twenty five you know when Paul's writing here, he says, husbands, love your wives. And then he this is and this is a little side note. Whether you're a husband, wife, whatever you're doing in life, you know, the gospel, Christ is our bearing. You know, that's where we want to go to. And that's what Paul does here. He says, Husbands, love your, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave herself, gave himself up for her. So Jesus gave Himself up for whom? His bride. And, you know, Jesus is not a polygamist. <laughs> He's got one bride, one people, one group that He gave Himself up for. Not just the, you know, quote-unquote New Testament church, but the people of God for all time. Christ gave Himself up for her, the people, the assembly, the church, the people of God. So we'd see the church is universal. It, it spans space and time. All throughout history, we are God's people, but it also exists in time, right? And it expresses itself in a local church, the Hill Baptist Church, in, in, as long as we express those things that are true in the Scripture of what a church is. Okay, And so you have this universal nature of the church, and then you have the local expression, which one of those is the Hill Baptist Church. Now, we can't say that our church is the church. In other words, if you're not part of the Hill Baptist Church, sorry, you're not in the church. We can't say that. But what we can say is that as long as we are biblical then we are part of the universal church. We are a local expression of the universal church. And in the New Testament, this word church is used in two ways, referring to the people of God. On the one hand, it talks about this universal nature of the church, and on the other hand, it talks about this local nature of the church. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12... You may want to turn there we're going to be uh, there's a few places in corinthians I want to show you first corinthians twelve Paul's going to use the the word for church to refer to the church as the whole the universal church the one church first corinthians twelve twenty eight Paul writes and God has appointed in the church first apostles second prophets third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. So what he's saying here is, among the people of God, the church, God has provided certain gifts. And the word he uses there for church is the singular, it's the universal church. Not just the church in Corinth, but the church as a whole. But more frequently, Paul when he uses the word church, he's referring to the local church. For example, if you flip over a few chapters in 1 Corinthians 16, as he concludes his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16:19, this is what Paul says. He says, "...the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord." So we got churches everywhere, you know, churches in Asia, we got this church over here in this house, so the local churches, several churches. In other words, these expressions, these outcroppings of the universal church, they send you greetings. And so we see the usage in the New Testament both referring to the universal and the local nature of the church. And yet all throughout the New Testament we see the stress being laid on Involvement in this local community of believers. Let me just give you one example. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this. It says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this, this meeting together, this assembling together is what the church does so that we can spur each other on to love and good works, right? So you gather together with people that are in Christ to spur one another on to love and good works. And so, if you are in in Christ, then you should seek to be involved in this local community of believers, this local church. And I'll talk more about what it means to be a part of a local church and involved in a local church in the weeks to come. But what we see in the New Testament is that there's this idea of the church being both universal as well as local. So we believe in one holy, universal, and lastly, apostolic church. Meaning, every church, if it is a church, must be grounded and guided by the Bible. The Word of God. And I want to just show you the kind of the logic or the flow of this. Uh, Luke six thirteen. Jesus has, has, has many followers, many disciples, and then what he does in Luke six thirteen is he narrows down that group. And this is what it says. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he whom he named apostles. And so he takes all those who are following him and he narrows it down to the apostles because he's got a plan that he's going to use these apostles to accomplish. And we see that plan, or at least it gives us more of a hint of that plan in John 17, you know, when he's praying to the Father. We referenced this earlier. John 17, 20, when he said, or when he prayed, I do not ask for these only. And so he's talking about the apostles, with him. He's not asking for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so Jesus is praying for those, those followers of his that are with him, but he also says, I'm also praying for those who will follow me or believe in me through their word. And so you see this idea of, okay, it looks like people are going to come to know Christ through the words of the apostles. And this is further confirmed when the Apostle Paul, as he's explaining in the book of Ephesians to the the non-Jews, and he's explaining how God can do all this. He can bring everybody together and build this church, this community of people. And he says in Ephesians 2, verse 19, he says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So Christ is the cornerstone, okay, he's the main rock, I mean, he's the foundation, but then the way we know about him is through the apostles and prophets, Or another way to say that would be the Old and New Testament. The Scripture, the Word of God. And so therefore the church must be grounded and guided by the Word of God if in fact it's going to be a representative or an expression of the true church. Or as one scholar put it, there has been a succession... Of apostolic teaching based on the Word of God. Now, follow me here. The significance is on the succession, not of the messenger, but on the message. The significance is on the succession from Christ to us of the message, not not the messenger. I mean, there are some denominations that want to say the significance is on the messenger, but I would say that the significance is not on the messenger, it's more so on the message, the apostles', the apostles teaching. And I think we see this even in the book of Galatians that we completed a few weeks ago. You know, you know Paul wrote to the Galatians and he was dealing with a, a heresy that was going on in the church, people were perverting the gospel, and so he writes to them and and in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, he says this. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quick, quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now listen to this. Listen to what Paul says here. The Apostle Paul. He says, But even if we, or an angel from heaven... Should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So what Paul's saying is, you have the authentic message. So even if I were to come back to you and try to teach you something different, may I be accursed. In other words, I'm not the important one here. It's the message. It's the gospel. That's what is important. That's what you don't want to get wrong. That's what you want to make sure comes from Christ to you through the apostles, or Christ to the church. So in other words, the succession of the true message is more important than the succession of the messenger. And that's why the church needs to be apostolic. It needs to be grounded and guided by the Bible. The famous reformer John Calvin said this about the church. He said, wherever we see the Word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, he's talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper, there it is not to be doubted A church of God exists. So he says, wherever we see the Word of God purely preached and heard, and the sacraments rightly administered, you see the church of God. The visible representation of the church. So now let's go back to the interview. You know, if someone were to come in here with a camera and say, what is the church? How would you define it? Hopefully, you would not say it's a building with a cross on it. (laughs) And hopefully, you wouldn't say, well, it's that meeting that we go to at 11 a.m. on Sunday. I'm going to church. No. No, you don't. Church is not an event, it's not a building. But hopefully, you would say that the church is invisible and yet it's visible. It is a group of people forgiven of their sin and yet set apart for a mission. It is universal yet local. And it is grounded and guided by the Bible. Or you could simply say, we believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. Now, as we close, there are two things to consider. One is, do you have faith in Christ? If the answer is yes... You are part of the church, you are part of the community of of God, the assembly of God. If not, then I encourage you to place your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and receive new life in him because it 's only through Christ that you can be part of the church or the people of God. And the second thing you need to consider is are you part of, are involved in a local church? you know if so, then I encourage you to invest and help that community fulfill the mission of God. If not, then I encourage you to join a local church, whether it be this one or another gospel-centered local church in our city. Because it's been said, you know, a Christian without a church is like a child without a family or a man without a country. We were made for the community. That's how we carry out the mission of God is in, in the community. And so perhaps today, you'd like to officially join our church. And if so, we'd love to have you part of this family as we seek to fulfill this mission that God has given us. And if that's your desire, then as we stand and sing, I'm going to be down front, you're welcome to come and talk to me about that. We can pray together and talk about it here. Or if you'd like to come by my office sometime or schedule an appointment this week or whenever, I'd love to talk with you more about what it looks like to be involved and part of a local church so now as we stand as his church may God be glorified in and through his church let us stand and sing together